0: Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the reliability and strength of remote viewing. My guest is Russell Targ, who is the author of The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. Also, Limitless Mind, A Guide to Remote Viewing and Transformation of Consciousness. He co-authored two books with Jane Catra called Miracles of Mind and The Heart of the Mind, He co-authored a book with J.J. Hertek called The End of Suffering. He co-authored a book with Hal Putoff called Mind Reach, with an introduction by the great anthropologist Margaret Mead. And he co-authored The Mind Race with Keith Harari. He's also written an autobiography called Do You See What I See? And he has produced the video documentary Third Eye Spies. This is an internet interview, and now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Russell. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. I'm very happy to have a chance to chat with you. I know we've had many conversations, but this one I think is especially important because even within the parapsychology community, there are uh, people who are skeptical not only of the strength and reliability of psi and, and in particular remote viewing, but there are parapsychologists who, after decades, are still unwilling to commit to the idea that psi exists. That's very amazing. It's true. Ten years ago,
0: I received an award for my career in parapsychology in Paris. And I talked about the work we did at SRI for a decade of remarkable events. And I said, by the way, of the hundred people here, are there, is there anybody here who is convinced that something like ESP exists? I had three hands went up out of a hundred. And I said, "Why have you guys spent your lifetime doing this if you're not convinced anybody is anything like that is there?" And what had occurred to me later on, as I was thinking about talking to you, is that psychic ability is like radioactivity from a physicist's point of view. I, I spent many I, as a graduate student. I was working on atomic physics, and I, I might tell you that. From my studies, radioactivity is really a very powerful ingredient, and we should all know about it because it's important and powerful. And you might say, well, I've heard about that, and I went out into my backyard and shoveled a whole ton of uranium oxide into my basement, and my house is as cold as ever. That radioactivity doesn't do a damn thing. And I think that psychic abilities are like that, there's are certain things you can do with psychic abilities, like find a Russian submarine or a downed airplane or your friend hiding a mile away. But what you cannot do is read the serial number on a dollar bill. So if your criterion for psychic ability is that you've got to read the serial number on the dollar bill, then you're right that ESP doesn't work. So I think that the people who are dubious about the existence of psychic abilities have heard amazing things, but they just don't know what to do with it.
1: I think that's true. There are certainly a handful or more of researchers in the parapsychology community who get consistently uh, positive results. You're such a person. uh, We can name others. In fact, people with whom we're generally associated, Charlie Tart, Dean Radin. Uh, There there are actually probably quite a few others. Stephen Schwartz. Stephen Schwartz is, is, is yet another person. Um, and I suppose it's fair to say in your case, in the case of Stephen Schwartz, certainly, you had a, a background prior to getting involved in parapsychology of uh, taking a deep interest in esoteric and spiritual culture. Now, in, in your case, I know you've, uh, were involved with the Theosophical Society in New York City before you uh, began a career in parapsychology.
0: Yes, when I was a graduate student in physics, by day, in the evening, I would visit the, Parasy- the Theosophical Society in Midtown Manhattan, and I get interested in Kundalini meditation, which I did for some years, till I discovered that they were right. You can really get into serious trouble if you meditate on the
1: powerful forces that are available without a teacher. It's sort of a mystery to me why some researchers are so successful and others are, are not. You would think that uh, over time, the ones who are not successful, like uh, John Beloff was known as an unsuccessful parapsychologist throughout his career, you, you'd think he might have learned a few tricks and, and gotten better if it was a question of learning tricks. Uh, maybe there's something deeper involved. Past lives. Yeah, I think it's probably harder to be psychic in Edinburgh. <laughs> it's, not, it's not known to be a psychic community, and and yet the Scottish people are well known for what they call second sight in the uh, you know the hills around Edinburgh. There are probably lots of psychic people. That's true. Maybe it's being a philosopher
0: or a or a analytic philosopher because he was certainly passionate about psychic abilities. John Belliff was not a skeptic. He was an interested researcher. He just didn't have any success. I think people who have been successful in parapsychology are often experiencers. When I was a teenager, I was on stage as a magician pretending to read minds, and I frequently would have a little flash of information about the person who I was pretending to do mind reading with. And since then, I've talked to Melbourne Christopher, great American magician, and the amazing Kreskin I had a long interview with. And both of them said, oh yes, I'm sometimes on the stage. Sometimes I've blown a trick, and a little ESP will come my way and actually help me with what I'm doing. So it's not that magicians hate psychic abilities. They just don't like to see people on stage doing fake ESP and pretending that it's real.
1: Well, Russell, one of the things that you point out is uh, that at SRI in the remote viewing studies you did you often uh served as the monitor and uh that the role of the monitor hasn't been uh really studied or appreciated very much but you point out examples of where your intuition about knowing just what kind of questions to ask a remote viewer while they're in the process of viewing uh seemed to make a difference
0: Yes, what I learned is that, first of all, you should be kind to your viewer and not pretend that they're a rat you're running through the maze. You want to treat them respectfully. And your job, analytically, is to avoid any guessing. If we're doing an experiment where my partner is hidden somewhere in the Bay Area, uh, there's a great tendency to say, I see where he is. He's at Macy's or he's at the mall or he's some other place. And my job as the interviewer is to say respectfully, uh, let's start that over. Uh, don't guess what you're thinking it is. Just tell me about your experience. So, getting people to give up guessing and grasping is a very important element. And this is not a new age idea. Padma Sambhava, who's in the corner behind, behind me right now, in the 8th century, wrote a book called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. It sounds very New Age, but it was written 1,200 years ago. And he's helping you move from your present state of suffering into a peaceful state of timeless awareness. And in order to move to timeless awareness, said Padmasambhava, you have to give up your desire to name and grasp the things that you're experiencing, because naming and grasping is the enemy of timeless awareness. So that was entirely understood in an analytic sense 1,200
1: years ago. Let me ask you, Russell, when did you start studying these ancient uh, scriptures with all of their references to things like timeless awareness? Well, I was reading the
0: Theosophical Materials and Kundalini meditation. Um, in my twenty, in my early twenties, I was a graduate student, and I would. Uh, my first trip to the theosophical society was to hear a lecture on Bridie Murphy, so that would have been 1954. So I have a long history with Parasy- with theosophical society, but it really was not until the teachings of Long Champa Lung Chen Rabjan became to be published uh, at the turn of this century. For a long time the teaching of Long Chen Rabjan were considered secret. The Buddhists didn't want to release that because who knows what could happen if it got into the wrong hands. And then eventually uh, the powers or the Dalai Lama, whoever decides these things, decided that these d- things are so difficult to read that they're really self-secret. That is, you could you could put uh, the basic space of phenomena, which is the book that I first read, you could put that on the newsstand and not a person in a thousand would be able to make head or tails of that. As, as it turns out, that particular book is really like a transmission I read that at a time when I didn't know anything about uh, Dzogchen Buddhism, and I, felt, I finished that book, and I said, that's a remarkable book. That's self-evidently true. Of course, there's some things they don't quite understand, but a decade later, when I reread that book, I realized that this was a transmission. The, Dalai, the, the Lama who introduces the book says, simply having this book in your library is enough for you to receive the transmission of this remarkable volume. And I think that's what I experienced when I first read that 20 years ago. So it was really 20 years ago that I got into
1: Dzogchen Buddhism as a student and a practitioner. So you, you did a lot of your successful remote viewing experiments well before that. That's right. I, I was a meditator before that. I,
0: I had a pretty good idea on how to quiet the ongoing the mental chatter. And I tried to set a stage so that people were able to do that. And I, I spent 10 years sitting in the dark. It's as though the CIA paid for my spiritual development by providing a dark place and a routine for me to sit in the dark half a day for a decade, which is what I did, helping people develop their psychic ability. And I began to have a sense for what remote viewing sounds like. If the person is telling me about their experience, I would encourage them when they begin to drift off into what they think this is or what it reminds them of, I would try and take a break or make, make a drawing but e- even with people that I worked with a lot like Hella Hammond, I could even sense her, cha- her change of voice, which indicated to me that she's in this uh, frame of mind where she gets remarkable remote viewing.
1: So, it would seem as if you had a, an instinctive and intuitive sense about, for example, that people shouldn't try to name things. And this idea of the grasping mentality uh, interfering with remote viewing, uh, somehow you had a natural grasp of those things.
0: Yes, I understood that. And Ingo Swann, of course, articulated that. Ingo is the one who brought us the idea of analytical overlay being a source of noise that he he was confident of the problems of signal to noise ratio whereas you the job of the psychic is to separate the mental noise from the psychic signal and it's the job of the interviewer to help keep that happening because a, view, a viewer knows that he's there to give an answer and but it's not like a, a test that is struggling to get to figure out what the answer is is not the way to do it. You have to relax and let the answer come to you. And the interviewer has that job of uh, creating the peaceful environment where I instruct the view- the viewer not to tell me where Joe is hiding, but to tell me about the surprising images that come into your awareness regarding where Joe is. And I can then do it, since I don't know anything I can do whatever I want to do to try and help you do that. I once got into a security problem, which will amuse you. I was working with one of the remote viewers from the Army who wasn't getting anywhere. This is our first setting. He said, you know, I close my eyes and it's dark. I I just don't see anything. And we did that for about 20 minutes. And I told him, well, you know, in 10 minutes, they're going to be coming back here. And then we'll take you to the place. Why don't you just quiet your mind and visualize what it's going to look like when they come back and we go to this place? Because you're going to then experience it. What What do you experience now with regard to where we're going to be uh, when they come back? And then, oh, I, I can smell the water. There, there are birds flying around. I can see piers on, on, on the dock. And that was very entirely correct. And the woman who was typing this up was the security person for our group, and she turned me in for doing precognition, where I was supposed to be doing remote viewing. She said, Targ was not following
1: instructions. (laughs) But they got an accurate hit, nonetheless, because you allowed uh, yourself to be guided by intuition. That's right. We were get we were getting nowhere. You worked with Ingo Swan. You worked with Joe McMonigal. You worked with Hella Hamid and Pat Price. Uh, all of these people were some of the uh, top remote viewers in history. Somebody might well say uh, you were just lucky in getting talented people to work with you. But the interesting thing to me is that in that group, you originally selected Hella Hamid to be a control subject because you had no reason to think she had any remote viewing talent.
0: That's right. It's a very important outcome from our decade. We started with Pat Price, who was a lifetime experienced psychic and did phenomenally accurate descriptions and drawings of distant places. It was just a very amazing day after day he would make these accurate drawings. And Ingo Swan, of course, taught us how to do that. And then Ken Kress, who was our contract monitor, said, I want to see uh, somebody who's not a lifetime psychic. Can you find somebody who's never done this before? And I invited Hella to come and work with us. She's a professional photographer, old friend of the family, woman of the world, always willing to try something new. And she thought it was very amusing to be paid for being a psychic for the CIA. The whole new departure for her. And on our very first time, she was wearing her remote viewing socks with little eyeballs crocheted onto the toes because she took this all very seriously. And she said, OK, they've got what do I do now, Russ? What do, I'm just lying here. What should I do? And I told her to describe her experience. What comes into your mind as new and unusual. And she described the famous squares within squares of a pedestrian overpass. And that was her very first trial. It was an excellent drawing, a kind of archetype of a good remote viewing. And I was able to help her do that through a series, and she eventually caught on quite well and didn't need hardly any guidance at all. And what's interesting is that in her nine trials, her descriptions were so accurate that she was able to achieve overall significance. Ten times greater than the most psychic man in the world, hella's results were significant at one in a million Pat price was one in ten one in a hundred thousand. They're both highly significant, remarkable results, but Hella was much more parsimonious in her descriptions, so she often would say very, very little, but what she said was almost always correct, where sometimes Pat would go off on a wild goose chase and significantly miss. And what we found, we became confident then because of Hella's very good result that this may not be as unique as we thought. So the, army, the CIA then asked us to train up a group of army people because the army was getting embarrassed to have to come to California whenever they needed to find a russian airplane or a submarine or a kidnapped general or some other thing they wanted to be able to do it by themselves so hal and i Hal put off with my partner he and i went to a meeting prepared for us where there were 30 army officers to take part in a remote viewing task these are all men who were willing to volunteer and contribute their chances of promotion to learn to be viewers, And we chose six of those. And the star of that group was Joe McMonagall, who was, one again, one of the most psychic people we'd ever seen. But there were six people in that group who had never done remote viewing before. And we did six trials with each of those so that each day for six days, Hal and the commanding officer, Scotty Colonel Watt, would go hide somewhere and the person of the day sitting with me would just be faced with a piece of paper and me and say, okay, uh, Scotty and Hal have gone to hide someplace could be a bowling alley or a boat dock or a church or a, anything, anything in the rich Bay area. And, we did six trials with each of these six guys. So we did 36 trials. And since their rank order matched, best to worst, you would expect each guy to get one right. So you would expect six first-place matches, one, one from each of the six people. We got 19 first-place matches, which is odds of like one in a million for, for this group of people. They're highly significant. If you wanted to measure the effect size, you take the uh, number of standard deviations. In this case, it was you had number four standard deviations divided by the square root of the number of trials. So it's four sigma divided by the number of trials square root of thirty-six. So number so the effect size is four divided by six, or two-thirds. So that's a Phenomenally high effect size, the effect size of 0.67, which is like 20 times greater than uh, car guessing or Gansfeld and uh, was really remarkable. People could hardly believe that. And in fact, the program carried on for another decade with these people seeing effect size in the 0.4 to 0.5 range. Uh, which was a new super high ground in psychic ability. And two of these very high scores, one came from a group of army officers who had never done this before, and the other was our control subject. So the control subject and the six army officers are the ones who staked out the new high ground for psychic abilities with people who were inexperienced, off the street, never done this before, and they were showing psychic functioning at least 10 times higher than is normally seen. So the idea is that remote viewing in this free response format of a viewer working with an interviewer may be a new approach that can tease out really reliable and useful aspects of this hitherto Fairly random phenomena.
1: I gather that the uh, six army uh, trainees that you had—well, they—I'm calling them trainees—but I gather that you gave them a minimal amount of training. You basically just told them uh, what to do rather than how to do it. That's right. People, I get a lot of email. People
0: want to take training with me, and I said, "I don't, I don't do training. I've done a lot of workshops." At Esalen, where we have a nice time, but basically, I am just showing people the moves that I'm showing. I'm giving them permission to make use of an ability they already already have. For example, uh, my former wife, who's now died, was uh, Joan Fisher, and her brother was the world champion, Bobby Fisher, champion of the world. And people were very excited, excited. Well, Joan taught Bobby how to play when, she, when they were children. Was, was, she a, was she a great chess player? And the answer: Joan had no interest in chess at all. She lit her, her job was just to teach her eight-year-old brother show, her, show him the moves, and they say the rest is history. So I, my job was to show Joe McMonigle the moves. He had never done this before, but all I had to do is set the stage, tell him that his colonel is hiding somewhere, tell me about the surprising images associated with that, and he drew an architecturally correct drawing of the Stanford Art Museum, a striking, accurate picture, and that was his first ever remote viewing. So my job is not teaching remote viewing, but sort of setting the stage and saying that it's okay, and here's how you do it. At
1: the same time, I, though, I understand that Ingo Swan and your partner Hal Putoff did develop a training program. Yes, they—they they have a.
0: I'm not sure that Hal was involved, and and Ingo and I quarreled over that. Ingo's training program involved his sitting with a viewer of the day, and he would Ingo would have a picture, and he would try and guide the viewer to get uh, images that corresponded to what he would see at a later time. However, Ingo knew the answer, and we consider that extremely bad protocol for several reasons. First of all, what you're doing, you're teaching the person to read Ingo's mind. So you, so we really, he's going to look and see what kind of images he gets from Ingo by mental telepathy, and we think that there is such a thing. But you're also teaching him to look into his future, and very often a viewer will not get feedback. So one of the important things that we know is that although feedback is helpful, when you're learning, it's not essential to a later remote viewer. You don't need feedback. So the fact that Ingo is sitting in front of a picture, face down, presumably, and trying to guide the viewer to experience that picture, I thought that was a terrible protocol And uh, I would never do that. It's not necessary. So I felt that that's sort of an anti-training procedure. I had someone, I had a housemate once who was a uh, spiritual healer and doing mental diagnosis, intuitive diagnosis. And she said, well, I could teach you to do that. And I said, oh, good. So she said, well, I'll come over. I'll, I'll write the name of a person on a card. And I said, no, no, write... Three people's name on three cards, and when you come, we'll shuffle them up. Because if I'm sitting across from you, describing somebody, I don't want you to know that answer and be pushing your view of her diagnosis. I want to make contact with the person through the card as an address, and that that seemed to be a very, very recherché, very uh, obscure. Problem that I was making. I don't think that my teacher ever understood what the problem was. But it turned out that uh, intuitive diagnosis is very easy to do. And although we don't understand its mechanism any more than we understand the mechanism for remote viewing, uh, I included a intuitive diagnosis session at the end of all my workshops, doing an intuitive diagnosis of a person whose name is on a card is even easier than doing remote viewing of a location of a picture in an envelope it's, it's a more natural thing and people are really blown away that they could do such an accurate well i think that they incorporate or the feeling tone of the sick person or the distant person
1: but that that works anomalously well that you've been doing workshops all over the world now uh, and, and you 've been doing that for decades. I am under the impression from our conversations that typically speaking, when you do such a workshop, many, if not most of the people in the workshop demonstrate successful remote viewing uh, right off the bat
0: that's right uh, i've done a lot of these things in Italy and in epsilon and other, other places, I, I had a thousand people in a so-called workshop uh, in the desert recently. And what I always tell the people, uh, you don't have to worry about anything. I, I will guarantee that everybody here will either have a psychic experience or see something psychic. And the producers of the workshops are always very alarmed that all these people are going to want their money back. But I've never had anybody ask for their money back. Not that everyone has a great psychic experience, but either the person themselves will have enough intuitive connection with my target or their nearest neighbor will have done something so that everybody feels, even in a big group like that, they feel like they've had contact uh, with the target so my my feeling that I've gotten more I've gotten more confident about that over the years. Maybe I've become uh, more knowledgeable about what's available or more skillful about how to do that. Uh, but I've gotten more courageous about what I'm willing to tell people is going to happen.
1: Russell, uh, a thought just popped into my head. In fact, a phrase uh, that I don't recall ever even thinking before, and and the phrase is a psychic catalyst, a person around whom uh, lots of psychic events occur, even if that person themselves is not uh, highly engaged in psychic functioning. Uh, now, I know you have been a successful remote viewer from time to time, but I think that possibly you yourself are, are functioning as a psychic catalyst so that uh, people in your presence seem to do better. Well, there's a whole group of so-called psych-inducive experimenters.
0: I was once in a workshop with William Broad and Marilyn Schlitz and uh, Dean Radin talking about psych-inducive experimenters because there was a time, oh, this is maybe 30 years ago, where a sizable proportion of the published data belonged to just a handful of people. And... So, some, I think Dean Radin thought that that was interesting. Maybe we should get those people together and see if they're doing something uh, similar to one another. For example, Marilyn was involved in an experiment at Duke, at Duke University with Ramakrishna Rao. Rao had the idea that maybe a psychic could awaken anesthetized mice. If the mice anesthetized, and they then would be, these little furry bundles would be divided. Half would go to Maryland and half would go to Rao. And time after time, <clears throat> Maryland was much more successful in awakening the, the white rats. And it seemed obvious to me uh, that the rats would rather wake up and see cheerful, energetic Maryland than sleepy Ramakrishna Rao, who the Indian meditator more awake than a more asleep than awake let's say so so the the fact the fact that the rats would wake up for Marilyn and not for Rao wasn't even surprising on the face of it but so a a psych conducive experimenter even is more conducive with
1: rats Well, and since you mentioned Marilyn Schlitz, I think uh, it would be a service to let our viewers know about the study she did with the uh, avowed skeptic Richard Wiseman uh, in his laboratory using a setup that he designed uh, where she served as the uh, running the experiment and got successful results. He tried to run the same experiment and the results were unsuccessful were these staring experiments where yes.
0: were, were one group of people would be stared at by the experimenter and you measure their brain waves or skin resistance and um, the experiments that Bo- Marilyn had published several rounds of this with William Broad successfully and she had done them successfully by herself and when she was invited to, I guess, uh, London University or Birkbeck College, she did these with um, Richard Weissman. It was, she was
1: again successful and Weissman's group failed. That's exactly what happened. And as I recall, the staring was done from a distant location using video monitors, so there was no possibility of any sensory leakage.
0: That's a good humbling experience for people who think that we really know how the world works.
1: Uh, let's talk about some of the unusual successes uh, that are possible in remote viewing. I know even though Hella uh seemed to perform statistically 10 times better than Pat Price, as I recall, Pat Price was able to read code words from a, a secured uh, NSA uh, facility uh, which was used as as a target uh I gather, by the CIA in in some of their experiments, much to the consternation of the NSA. That's right. A very
0: early experiment uh, that we did, Kit Green wanted to see if we could uh, penetrate a facility that he had complete control over. He was confident that nobody in our lab at SRI knew anything about some place. And In fact, the place that in full disclosure, the place that he had chosen was a log cabin built by one of his colleagues in West Virginia. And that log cabin was just over the hill, they say, from the Sugar Grove top-secret crypto NSA facility using their microwave dishes to spy on the Russians. So both Pat Price and Ingo Swan were given the geographical coordinates of this place probably the coordinates would be indistinguishable from the log cabin, that the Sugar Grove was probably indistinguishable from the log cabin and the coordinates they were given. But both Pat Price and Ingo described the Sugar Grove great listening post with the uh, big microwave dishes and government buildings. And Price went on to describe down in the basement is where the action is. He said. there's a row of green filing cabinets. And I can read the names on the files. And it says this is something called 8-ball and rack up and pool cue and 14-ball. A whole bunch of things pertaining to billiards. And that's what I got. That's, so that's what he, together with some other words that I can't remember right now. But all of those appear in our film, Third Eye Spies, where we have the whole list of what Price was able to dig up from Sugar Grove. And we gave those to Kit Green, and he was shocked because he was looking for a log cabin. But since Pat and Ingo both described the same thing, he thought he would drive up, look at the log cabin, and follow the road past the log cabin. There was a guarded gate, and he's CIA, so he could go through the guarded gate. And he then saw the big dishes that the two psychics described. And then he asked inside at the appropriate uh, security place, do you have something here called um, Rack Up and 8-Ball and Q-Ball? And they oh, my God, those are the code names of some top secret programs that are described down in the files in the basement, the green filing cabinets, and Pri- Kit Green got to see the green filing cabinets. So it's as though Pat Price uh, went to the coordinates, and as he described it, from five thousand feet he could see the cabin. But who cares about a log cabin? These secretive CIA guys wanted to know, probably about the government facility, So he went into the government facility and went into the building. And he had total control over what what was going on there and was able to read those things. And as you say, the NSA was angry, not with us so much, but with Kit Green. They wanted to know, basically, why would you at the CIA have California psychics penetrate this top secret facility don't you know better than that so we had a very acrimonious meeting of nsa and cia and pat price at our facility and the nsa guy turned to pat and said if you're so psychic why didn't you go where the coordinate said and he said well in psychic space the more attention you have on hiding something the more it shines like a beacon and your facility was much more interesting than the log
1: cabin. Uh, parenthetically, isn't it the case that a- after all of that happened, the uh, uh, Kit Green or others in the CIA decided uh, that they wanted Pat Price to work directly for them rather than with you at SRI? Well,
0: that happened shortly after that. The next thing we had with Pat Price is that we were given coordinates of a R&D facility in Russia. That's what we were told. And I then went with Pat into our little shielded room, like a phone booth covered with copper screen. And Price said that he feels like he's lying out. See, I didn't have to cue him up. I didn't have to tell Pat what to do. He would just drink his coffee, close his eyes, and say, well, I feels to me like I'm lying on top of a building Feels good to be in the sun, and I see a giant gantry crane rolling back and forth over my body. Gantry crane, a huge crane, eight wheel gantry crane, four wheels on either side of the building. I've got to draw this. And it came to pass that the crane that he drew is a very, very good match for the principal object in the top secret photographs that the CIA brought with them to show us. And they're very impressed. I said, okay, you passed the first test. We really wanna know, and it's always that way with the customer. No matter what miracle you do for him, the first thing he says is, well, that's very good, but what I really wanna know is something entirely different that I didn't ask you. So what he really wanted to know is, well, what are they doing in the building underneath this crane? And Price leaned back in his chair and polished his glasses, much to the amusement of uh, Ken Kress. He said, well, why are you polishing your glasses to look into Soviet Siberia? And he said, well, I see better with my glasses clean. And Price went on to describe, and I'm sitting with him in the little shielded room. And Price says, I'm. I see that they're trying to construct a whole group of guys in white coats and they're trying to weld together a giant sphere and they're making um, the sphere out of gores, which are little orange peel slices. And I knew what a gore was at that time, so I understood what he was saying. And in the eventual description of this by Aviation Week, they also said that these 60 foot spheres are made out of gores and we thought that that was a pretty obscure reference for Price to be aware of looking into this thing psychically he said you've got these 60 foot gores that they're trying to weld together but they're having a hard time welding them because they're so thick they're trying to make a sphere out of it and they're really having a hard time and after that they couldn't verify the sphere in fact the sphere was not known about for sure until two years after Price's death. So, this is a very important example of somebody who described an item very accurately and definitely received no feedback from it because no one, and in the film, Kit Green says, you didn't, you didn't get any feedback because nobody knew anything about the spheres until two years later. So, it was a very secure experiment. But the Aviation Week article talked about the, the gores and the problem they were having welding them together. So that was really a very amazing thing that I I can testify that I was sitting with Pat as he was talking, he's sort of empathizing with these poor guys who couldn't weld it together because it was so thick. He was really there watching the welding going on. And the CIA was so impressed. They, they felt that this guy, Pat Price, is too psychic and really too dangerous to be left with the hippies in California. That as Kit Green didn't really trust me, he said, I was, I was too enthusiastic. So it was too dangerous to have a guy like Pat. See, Pat Price had the potential for reading the nuclear launch codes in the pocket of the president and starting a nuclear war. Price demonstrated that he could read things with great accuracy so he he was in in a sense Price was viewed as an omniscient person and they wanted to get Price out of the hands of the hippies in California and they brought him to Washington to work directly for Kit Green at the CIA headquarters they pretended he was a farmer they gave him a farm to operate we visited him in his overalls and straw hat sweeping up the
1: hay well i suppose you could say in, in a kind of perverse way that pat price did you a big favor by dying when he did because that offered the rather conclusive proof that remote viewing can be successful in the absence of feedback
0: well the high price to pay cuz we really liked price very much a very amiable friendly guy, but uh, certainly his death demonstrated that unequivocally. This feedback is helpful for a person learning to, to do the trick, but uh, he, Price, demonstrated, and, I, and other other people also have not gotten feedback, but the Price case, but nobody, nobody died,
1: nobody is in the case where they died before feedback. The Pat Price case is one that you focus on extensively in your documentary, Third Eye Spies. And you certainly uh, leave it as an open question as, as to whether there was some foul play or nefarious activity of some sort involved in his death. And, since we're talking about the strength and reliability of remote viewing it it makes me wonder and i've heard other people wonder you know if a remote viewer gets too good does that mean that they're going to become a pawn in somebody else's game or or that their life might be in danger if they're too good and they're working for the cia
0: they certainly could be in danger cuz uh, from from making the film we had Dozens of hours of film with Ken Crest talking about Price, and it became clear that uh, having an omniscient psychic working for them was very frightening. That the CIA does their life's work over secrecy, and with Price around, there were no secrets. Now the problem with Price was that we eventually learned that Price was an enthusiastic Scientologist, which we knew, and he was sending each day's top-secret remote-viewing narrative, he was sending that to his Scientology auditor back at the Mother Church. We we now know that, because that was released two years later when the government broke into the Scientology looking for other things. Um, Now, if... Price was handing this information over in the very beginning. Um, Price was a smart man, but he was not a trained spy. So if he was meeting with the Scientologists or having regular phone calls with them or communicating in some other way by mail, it's very likely, in my opinion, the CIA knew about that because he was doing top-secret spying on foreign embassies for the CIA and price was uncleared the whole so that whole setup was very peculiar they had uh, farmer price out in the past year coming into headquarters every day spying on the Libyan embassy looking for the code room doing all sorts of other looking for uh, drug dealers and all sorts of amazing things all, all this without a clearance. And he was handing in that information daily to the Scientologists. Uh, my guess is, uninformed guess, is that the CIA must have known that after uh, a few weeks of surveillance. It must have been obvious to them. They then had a problem. What do we do when Superman is actually a double agent? Uh, the, the, smartest, the psychic man who can see anything is also working for the Scientologists. That's a big problem for them. So, one one question could be: uh, Could the Scientologists have killed him because they were too nervous about uh, what he was able to do psychically? Or the Russians could have killed him because he was a dangerous asset. Or he could have died because he had a heart attack, and we don't know the answer to that. We have, we have no. Privileged information.
1: But it's a mystery. With regard to the other talented people you worked with, Ingo Swan, Hella Hammett, Joe McMonagall, uh, and I'm sure there are a few others uh, who weren't involved at the level that Pat Price was with the CIA. They've all managed to live out their lives without any sort of uh, hint of foul play. So I guess maybe the lesson is uh, you have to be careful who you're working with.
0: That's right. Hella was in no danger. She lived to be 72. She unfortunately died of cancer. Looking back, I now think that 72 is pretty young. Uh, Ingo Swan was not really working for the CIA in the way that Price was. So I think if you, if you get in bed with the CIA and become an operative and are read into a lot of top secret funny business the CIA is doing, Then you really put yourself in jeopardy, in my opinion. But I I don't think that Hella considered herself in danger, nor do I think she was in any danger.
1: It seems to me that the thrust of uh, our discussion, which is based, incidentally, I know on a paper that you've written recently, which has been submitted to uh, a scientific journal, is is that very highly reliable and strong results can be achieved with remote viewing. And you seem to be suggesting that people can do that and, and work in a research context or maybe even in the private sector or maybe even in the military. Military, uh, without necessarily endangering themselves. As I, what we've shown is
0: that psychic abilities are reliable and 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 strong under the right conditions. It would be incorrect to say that ESP is weak and unreliable. In the end, uh, I trained up six army officers who went back to Fort Meade, Maryland, who started a psychic army corps. For the intelligence command, for INSCOM, and that went on for a decade. And during their decade, they did 450 tasks for the CIA, DIA, and various other branches. And for DIA, they were called on to do 140 tasks, and they did 30 for the CIA. And that shows that they had satisfied customers. That so if your customer keeps coming back for 130 more of what you gave them the first time, it seems like you're doing something pretty reliable. And in fact, the INSCOM report on the first uh, 750 trials they did at in at the at Fort Meade, they said that 85% of them showed psychic ability and half of those were useful in an operational sense. And that's all published, well, I'm publishing that in, in my paper, and this was published in Proceedings that Ed May put out in four volumes showing the final declassified records of the Stargate program. What it shows is that the, the innocent, untrained Stargate people, the people at Fort Meade, were learning remote viewing. None of these were famous psychics. These people who came in off the street and we showed them the move, showed them how to do remote viewing. In the course of a decade, they had 450 tasks that they were asked to do. And these were asked from customers who kept coming back again and again over hundreds of trials for more and more data, including the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency So, I think that the evidence is very strong that whatever you think about psychic ability, uh, army intelligence thought that it was useful for a decade.
1: Well, wouldn't it seem logical to you then, Russell, given that track record, uh, which has been published, it's quite demonstrable, that... uh, Remote viewing uh, would be more widely and publicly applied today in uh, the private sector, uh, in the educational arena, and, and of course, uh, the government as well. It would seem to me that uh, with that kind of a track record, the government would be foolish not to continue uh, with remote viewing.
0: Well, I think it's very likely that the government is continuing to do that. In fact, in the film, Kit Green says that they're probably still doing that. And of the people that I trained, two of them were CIA agents who came to see what we are doing. They went back, and in this 1970s, the 1970s, this man and woman were working, the man and woman that I trained were working with Pat Price as though they had a little remote-viewing coffee club at CIA that they were doing tasks. So... Uh, it's now 40 years past that. It would be surprising that you didn't have some remote viewing going on in the basement of the CIA. That, that's, what, that, that's what Kit Green says, and I think that that's probably true. In the society at large, um, there's still a – in America, it's still not comfortable being psychics. Being Why aren't there – if psychic abilities are so – powerful, why aren't there more psychics? And the answer would be that in America, ESP is forbidden. The psychic ability is considered a sign of mental illness. In places like Iceland or Brazil or Holland or even Soviet Siberia, psychic abilities are considered ordinary and desirable. For example, in Iceland, where I spent a bit of time, uh, if, if a small child says, I've been thinking about grandma. I think grandma's going to come and see us. In Iceland, the mother would set the table and say, grandma's probably coming for lunch. Maybe we should uh, get ready for her appearance at the table. In New York, if your kid says, I think grandma's coming, you say, don't don't do that silly talk. Grandma's in California. She's not coming. And it's just uh, psychic abilities. In Iceland, first, are are honored and considered an important, or in Brazil, they're considered a useful and everyday occurrence. But it, but I think I think that uh, there's a certainly increasing interest in psychic ability. Our film is doing extremely well. The third third eye spies
1: we're very happy about that. I'm glad to hear that Russell and I'm very happy to uh, continue to share your experience and your stories with our viewers I think the bottom line message seems to be that this stuff can work extremely well there there's still some I I suppose a researcher would call it uncontrollable factors there there seems to be I, I'll call it the X factor where some people for mysterious reasons such as yourself are highly successful and And other people who are just as enthusiastic are are not. So uh, we have a lot yet to learn. And uh, the best way to learn is to continue to study the phenomena as far as I'm concerned. Well, Russell, thank you once again for being with me. I hope uh, that we're able to have many more conversations like this to share with our viewers. Well, thank you very much for talking with me, Jeffrey. I'm always happy to chat with you. Likewise, Russell, you're one of my best friends.